right, good morning. Well, we come to our final summer psalm of the summer, Psalm 74, and uh, we'll pick back up next summer with a few more. Uh, I believe this is what, our, our seventh one, uh, including John and I's all, but I don't know. Someone else can keep count of that kind of thing, I don't know. All right, anyway, uh, as you get there, have a look. There's the, the prescript that comes right before, right? Uh, and in that, we learn that this psalm, Psalm 74, was written by Asaph. Um, uh, but based on the time period that this psalm has been written, right, this is certainly not the Asaph of King David's time. Uh, this Asaph is most likely someone who was named in the honor of that Asaph, uh, you know, Levitical priest, musician uh, who, who wrote this. Now, uh, the other thing you're going to see when you look at that prescript there is this term, right, that it, this psalm is called a mascal. Uh, this is one of the weird things sometimes in Scripture. You have this word, it shows up here, nowhere else, nowhere else in other outside of, uh, you know, biblical context uh, anywhere. And so no one's certain what this term means. Uh, uh, the best ideas or, or theories on this is that it's a category of psalm, in which case it's a category of psalm that is contemplative. Now, uh, again, we don't know for sure. As, as for the setting of this psalm, while it's not explicitly written here like we sometimes see, uh, this is undoubtedly appearing in this time just after King Nebuchadnezzar marched his army into Jerusalem, right? He was the, the Babylonian king and just destroyed the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the, the, the OG temple, uh, and, and so that places it somewhere around or shortly after 586 B.C., and, and if you're like me in most of my life, right, where I'm like, I don't know what that means, where in history is that? Is that before the Civil War or after, uh, right? To put that in perspective of, of biblical books, it's about uh, 70 years before Ezra and Nehemiah, the events of those would, would have occurred. So, uh, it's a time, though, here that what's going on is, is really God's people, Israel here, are, are wrestling with fear. They are afraid that maybe, maybe God's not sovereign like we've, we've hoped he could, or maybe he's not good, or, or maybe he's not for us and he hates us now, right? Maybe he's not keeping his covenant anymore and he's done with us. And, and they feel that way because the, the world as they know it, as they understand it, as they've experienced it, is in absolute chaos at this time, right? What, what they're seeing is God is not showing up in the ways that they expect. They're not being treated in the way they expect to be treated as God's covenant people. Now, this is a psalm that, that reminds their hearts and, and our hearts, too, that God is, in fact, in control. Even when it, even when it looks like the, the enemies of our Lord are, are, ha our Lord are having all the victories. So that, that sets it up. Let's, let's go ahead and read Psalm 74, and I'm going to just read it all in one go here today. Uh, and then we'll dig into it. Follow along. This is that part where I, I got to put my glasses on. There we go. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The, the enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees. And, and, and all of its carved wood, they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to them, themselves, 
we will utterly subdue them. And they burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet. And there is none among us who knows how long. So how long, O oh God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. Yet God, my, my King, is from old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of the Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also is the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the habitations of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and the needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. Good and gracious and sovereign Lord, thank you for life. Thank you that, that we have breath in our lungs today. Thank you for bringing us into your presence this morning. And, and thank you for this focused time in your word and for this time spent in the company of your people, reminding us that we're not alone. This morning, Lord, we ask that you, would, you please grant our hearts a desire to understand your word and, and grant our minds the ability to understand your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So if you were to summarize these first 11 verses, the, the first thing you'd see is that this is a, a, a litany of laments, of sadness, of sorrow, of, of complaints, a series of complaints. But, but right off the bat, I want you to notice that, that they aren't just complaining about God out into the world or to others as we are sometimes prone to, to speak ourselves, but they are addressed to God himself, speaking to him, telling God himself what it is. It is a prayer to the Lord. Uh, and, and I want us to see that right off the bat because I want that, you know, look to this. Let this be a guide for your own fears, your own discontentments in this life, that you go to the Lord about what's going on, not just out to the world about, about what you think God should and shouldn't be doing. And so then, as we come to this a little further, right, the first thing that we learn from this, this litany of laments is, is that being the people of God, it does not exempt us from suffering in this life. And that suffering is it's very often part of God's intentions for us. Always part of His intentions, right? And now, you know, e even our Lord Jesus, who is the most faithful person to have ever lived who was beloved by the Father, he suffered dreadfully in this life, and all for the purpose of God's glory and for the redemption of, of, of you and I, for God's people. And so never assume that suffering is a sign that God does not love you or does not care for you or has somehow abandoned you. 
Now the second thing we learn here is, is this. Is, it's that suffering is gut-wrenchingly miserable. It is. You don't have to put on a face that just says, this is great. Please, sir, I'll have another, right? Um, I mean, listen again to verse 1, though. It's miserable. Oh, God, why do you cast us off forever? When our, our youngest daughter used to be disciplined, when she was a little bitty, uh, she'd cry out a little like this. It, it'd be something like she wouldn't, like, eat her dinner, and we'd tell her, well, you, Berkeley, you can't have dinner then. You know, you can't have dessert, rather, if you don't finish your dinner. And, and, and she would just go off with this, what? I can never, ever, ever again have dessert ever, forever? And it was the most unreasonable thing I've, I've ever seen. And, and so after a sigh and a, you know, an eye roll, we would tell her, that's not, that's not what we just said, right? And, and neither has the Lord said that to his people anywhere. And still, that's, that's how Asaph, that's how the people of God at this time feel as they look upon the ruins of Jerusalem, as they look upon the, the temple that they have just loved and, and cherished all these years, right, and see it demolished. God, have you forsaken us? Have you left us? Have you abandoned us forever? Is this the end? And, and here in verse 1, we, we see that they understand this destruction is, is part of God's discipline, that it, it comes in response to their, their going and, and worshiping false gods, worshiping idols. And there's a sense here, right? They, they wanted to worship these false gods. That's what they wanted. And well, now God has given them over to themselves, to that evil desire that, that they practice. And so into exile they go, in, into the heart of Babylon, where, where, the, where the worship of false gods is, is going to occur, where it's just a way of life now. Now, Asaph, of course, uses this term sheep here in this prayer. It's a reminder to, to you and I, it's a reminder to those who originally heard this, right, that, that God is our shepherd. Right? Not God was my shepherd, but he's reminding him that we are your sheep. Not we were your sheep. And in verse 2, he is pleading with God to remember them, to remember that he has redeemed them, to remember his presence among them in the temple. And now Asaph is, 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 he's not suggesting here that God has really forgotten them, right? Like, oh, where did you come from? Or, you know, like, like, like you forgot the name of that kid in third grade who liked to eat glue, right? It's not that kind of of God's forgotten them. He, he's asking God to act according to the covenant that he has made with his people. Don't forsake us. Don't, don't act differently to us than you have promised to act to us. Now, now, now look at verse 3. You can, you can almost picture here uh, Asaph leading the Lord through the rubble of, of, of the temple in particular when he says, when he says uh, direct your steps to the perpetual ruins, right? Like, let's go on this, this tour of this destruction. And then he goes on, right? Lord, Lord, have a look at what they have done to your sanctuary. Look, that's, that's where they busted through the doors, right? Verse 4, that's, that's where they set up their signs, right? Their, their standards. It's, it's most likely their, their weapons, their, their tools right here. Verse, verses 5 and 6, right? They came through here like lumberjacks through a forest, swinging their axes, just hacking away at everything, hammering and smashing and, and destroying everything, Lord. Um, verse 7, they... they, they they set your temple on fire. They profound or pro profane this holy ground. Most likely, meaning they set up idols for, for false worship. In, in verse 8, we, we see the Babylonians intended to, um, to, to deliver the fatal blow to all worship of, of our Lord, right? By, by destroying every place of worship uh, to the Lord. These would have been other areas set up. Uh, 
um, not in the same official thing, but across the land, anything that was used for the worship of the Lord. And, and while as God's people, we regularly face hostility for following the Lord, there, there are times in history when evil people gain such unrestrained power that what they attempt to do is to remove God's people completely. You, you think of uh, uh, Haman, right? And in, in the story of Esther, how he, he schemed to kill all the Israelites in Babylon. That, that was his plan as soon as he had the power to think he could do that. Or a bit more recently, not real recent, but right when uh, the Roman Catholic king, King Louis XIV of France, France in, the, in the late 1600s, he unleashed this, this merciless persecution against the French Protestants. You, you probably heard them by their other name, the, the French Huguenots, right? These, these Bible-believing Christians had to flee the land or lose their life. And, and many of them did both of those things, fleeing the land and or losing their life. Uh, there's many in our culture today who, who given absolute power, would absolutely jump at the chance to destroy all the places of public worship to the Lord across the United States. But thankfully, none have the power to actually do so. Now, I, I, I can't promise that might not always be the case. Israel probably never thought this was going to happen to them either. Um, and, and the other part of this is, in other parts of the globe, that's exactly what people who have power to do so have tried to do. And I, I mention that here so you'll remember to be praying for our brothers and sisters around the world who are facing that. So, so then have a look at verse 9. This is the low point of the psalm. Asaph is, is singing. It would have been in Hebrew and flown a little better. Um, we do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet. And there is none among us who knows how long. This brings to mind uh, an earlier prophecy uh, by Amos in Amos 8.11. Behold, the days are coming when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst of water, but, a hearing, uh, but of hearing the words of the Lord. That, that's the famine. These, these Israelites, they are, they're living in an age different than the one you and I are living in, right? They are living in an age when God is speaking through his prophets. When, and here they find themselves without a prophet, no one to, to tell them, what, what's going on without a, any word from God? And it leaves them absolutely terrified. It leaves them cut off feeling from God. They, they don't know what's going on here. They don't know how long this is going to last. Now, it's, it's fair, if you're familiar, right, uh, that, that the prophet uh, Jeremiah at the same time was given a word from the Lord, and he, and he shares that regarding the destruction of Jerusalem that was going to come and, and a Babylonian exile that was going to last 70 years. Uh, however, this is, the, you know, you and I live in this modern world where things go like that, information. They, they didn't have social media, not even the 10 o'clock news, you know, not even the, the ever, you know, uh, reliable United States post office. And, and so the psalmist here is unaware of, of that message that has been given to Jeremiah at this point. And, and part of that is because Jeremiah himself is facing exile. Now, in our day, we, we are never without the word of God. Um, I'm sure you could find an exception, desert island, locked in jail somewhere, right? But most of us have multiple copies of the scriptures. In fact, even if you speak uh, Elvish or Klingon or, or Mando, right, it's actually available in your language. You can go get it that way. And so we live in this time when, when faithful exposition of the word is also pretty easy to come by. For, for us, the problem is, is more often that we lack a desire to hear and to know God's word. We, we, we receive the word, yes, but, but it's often just choked out of our priority list by the thorns, by endless entertainment and, and such. I, I know that's, that's the struggle in my life at times. Uh, a desire to, to hear and to receive God's word 
should be a regular prayer that you are earnestly praying to the Lord. Lord, give me a desire for your word. A desire that's stronger than my desire for another show on Netflix or whatever it might be. Now, the the last two verses in this section, verses 10 and 11, they they add the question that we often ask ourselves, right? God, why why are the evil prospering here? That doesn't seem right, right? Why why do you not just destroy them? How how long are you going to let these evil people mock you and just get away with it? Right? And finally, would you, just, would you just destroy them already, Lord? You can. Why don't you? And, and, and as verse 11 ends, so does uh, lament, this, this lament of Asaph. Whereas up to this point, he has been asking God to remember his people. Now it turns, right? And if you notice well, in our next section, Asaph is asking God's people to remember God. To remember who God really is. And his explanation begins in, in, in what is the key verse here. Verse 12, <clears throat> with that phrase... Yet God, yet God, and, and then he recounts the wondrous deeds of the Lord, beginning with the, uh, the, the general truth that God has saved his people numerous times and on numerous ways. And then verse 13, he gets specific, right, by re- referring to the escape of Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea, and, and then the sea monsters, and this is where when we're reading, we're like, what, sea monsters, what's going on here? It's a bit confusing, but it, it's most likely a, just a reference to the water that comes down crushing the the Egyptians who chased after the Israelites through the, through the dry land there. Um, and the Leviathan in verse 14, <clears throat> this is one of these highly debated, what is this, what's going on here? Uh, that word shows up four other times in, in the scriptures by that name. Uh, never with a super clear idea of what you're supposed to picture in your, your head when you hear that word, right? In Psalm 104, 26, uh, the Leviathan is, is pictured like a whale, in Job 41.1, it's, it's believed to describe a crocodile. In Isaiah 27.1, it is said to be like a serpent. Uh, Tremper Longman, the third technically, believes that uh, this is a reference to a Canaanite myth, creation myth, that spoke of the seven-headed sea monster that, that was defeated by the, the false god of Baal. Uh, and in which case, what's, what's happening here, right? Asaph's point is that, that God is the real victor over evil. Right? So even this idea that the Canaanites have uh, of evil, God is the only one who, who really is victor, has victory over evil, not man and, and, and not Baal. In fact, if you look at this whole section, you begin to see that every statement in these six verses begins with you, but referring to God. Let me just read you a few of them. You divided the sea. You crushed the heads of the Leviathan. You split open springs and brooks. Right? That's a reference to uh, the water coming out of the rock with, with Moses in the desert. Uh, you dried up ever-flowing streams. That's a, a reference to when God split the Jordan River from the cross. Uh, you <clears throat> have established the heavenly lights and the suns. In other words, God does it. It is God who does this for his people. It is God who's working. And all this miserable suffering that they are going through, all this heartbreaking misery, right? D- deep down, Asaph knows that their only real hope is the Lord. It is God who, who does for them. Now verse 16 is actually one of my favorite lines in the Psalms. Yours is the day. Yours also is the night. Now on the surface, um, what it's talking about is that God is sovereignly in control of the daytime and also the nighttime, right? You're like, all right, that makes sense. You know, meteorologists check, you know, people check with him to find out when the sun's going to rise today, right? Uh, 
It's, it's clear. That's, that's the most basic thing. And in fact, right, the lines that follow reference the sun and the stars as, as well as the summer and the winter, just kind of God over nature, if you will. Uh, but verse 16 is true in a deeper sense as well. When, when the world is, is lit, right, when all things are, are going well and, and you kind of can see the presence of the Lord, right, we're, we're, we're happy to acknowledge God's in control. Things are going good. I mentioned some time ago, right, I had a relative that always say, oh, that's a God moment. What she meant was, you know, something we didn't think was going to go good really went good. And so that's God working. Uh, but never, right, when, oh, things went horrible. That's a God moment. Well, that's also a God moment. You see, in the, in the darkness, when, when, when suffering, when frustrated, we, <clears throat> we really struggle to believe not only is God in control, but that God is good. You see, that's what Asaph feels. That, that's what he's reminding his own doubting heart of here. L- listen again, yours is the day, yours also the night. Now, I've heard from enough of you o- o- over the years to know that uh, many of you don't sleep well. I can see it, right? You're dozing off right now. No. Um, you, you crawl into bed at night and you're worried about whatever the next deadline is. You're worried about some decision you have to make. You're worried about bills, about relationships. You're worried about something that's out of your control that you want to somehow figure out how you can put into your control. And, and so you don't sleep well, right? The, the David Murray in that delightful yellow book of his called Reset, I uh, highly encourage it. He, he says this, When and how long we sleep makes a huge statement about who we are and what we believe about ourselves and God. You know that, that famous line, Psalm 4610, be still, you know how the rest of it goes? You can say it. And Yeah, right? And know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. That, that opening phrase, be, be still, it's interesting in the Latin, but it's more interesting in the Hebrew, right? Um, it, it means... It means to slack, be still, to slack, to relax, to sink down, to cease, to stop. We, we can only be still, we, we can only sink down and, and relax at night or any other time because we know who God is. And we know that the night, just like the day, belongs to the Lord, that we know He's still in control, that we know He still cares for us. And, and like we, we learned last week in, in Psalm 9, right, we must be in the practice of remembering who God is and what He has done for us, right, not only in creation, which is amazing, not only in redemption, there is nothing greater than that, not only in history for His people, all these events of splitting seas and defeating enemies, but, but also for you that we, we see the way the Lord has been working in our life and, and we come to Him with gratitude and we understand who God is, right? As, as Christians, we are to be remembering people, that we remember who God really is, even in the midst of times when, when it's hard to see it. Now, now as we come to our last section, we, we, we see that what began as a lament, what progressed into a time of reflecting on the Lord's good deeds, now in this last section blossoms into a confident prayer that is also Asaph preaching truth to himself. And preaching truth to the people who are going to sing this and, and read this and hear this psalm later. He, he remembers, right, in, in verse 18, that God cares about the glory of God's glorious name, right? That's something important to God. He, he reminds God there that how the Babylonians have, Babylonians have scoffed and mocked his name, <clears throat> right? In verse 19, he remembers how deeply God 
loves his chosen people. In fact, that's why Asaph uses that name, right? You, you think dove, you, you, you see it there, right? We, we, we know from the Song of Solomon, where it's, it's used a few times throughout that, that, that this term dove is one of great affections. And, and here, how, how Asaph uses it, right? Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beast, right? His covenant peoples, the dove, the wild beast, or the Babylonians. And then in verse 20, he prays saying, God, have regard for the covenant. In other words, he's, he's preaching to himself as he's praying this to God. God, I know, I know you are a keeper of promises, and I know you have established a covenant with us. There are times in your life you probably need to remember that, right? You can go back to Genesis 17, 7, right, where God declared, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, listen to this, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. To be God to you. That he will be our God and we are to be his people. And then God has declared that he will be our God. God has declared, right? These are promises of God. The, the, the covenant is so powerful because this is God's sovereign doing it. What, what I'm telling you is you can't undo it. It's indelible, right? You cannot undo it. You can't cancel God's love for his people. No one can. And Asaph is preaching that truth to himself right here at the valley, right here in the pit of his, his, his you know, oncoming despair maybe, just misery. Right? He's telling himself, I, I belong to God and God is loyally committed to love me. That is a powerful truth that he is preaching to himself. Do, do you know how to do that? For yourself, for those who come to you in moments of, of misery, do you know how to do that? Not in an insensitive, just throw it off. Things are going to be fine, right? But, but to really deeply preach truth to yourself, to preach the truth of God's word, right? To, to the doubts of your hearts. Or, or, or are you more willing to listen to the fears and the doubts that arise in your heart that, that are, they're saying things like, you know, God has forsaken me. God, God doesn't care. God has lost his affection for me because of what I've done maybe. He, he has forgotten his covenant promise to be my God. All those lies we kind of just say to ourselves. Listen, you learn to preach the gospel to yourself by learning to bring the pain of your circumstances into contact with the truth of God's word. That's how you do that. Now the final two verses here, they're pretty straightforward, but they you know, boldly are calling for God to arise when we see that in, in prayers, they're asking God to, to fight for them. To, to fight for his people to defeat their enemies. And so that's, that's what's going on there. So, so that brings us to the, to the end of the psalm. And maybe you're wondering, so what actually happened, right? This is, this is history. They actually prayed this. They had expectations. Did God hear this? Did he do anything about it? Did, did God answer Asaph's prayer? <clears throat> well, well, first of all, I, I do want you to remember, right, that Everything that's happening to them, this is not random at all. This is, the suffering that they're going through is a result of God's commitment to discipline Israel by, by exiling them to Babylon for these 70 years. God does that. He, he doesn't shorten the, the years and anything. He's not like, oh, well, you know, yeah, it was probably too harsh the first time. Let's just make it 20 years. Uh, he didn't answer it like that. However, right, the, the books of 
of Esther and Daniel and Ezekiel and, and others, they reveal how God protected and prospered his people during their, their time of exile. The, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai and Zechariah record the various ways that God had mercy on his people. How he kept his covenant promises even in this dark period. How God restored Israel to their land. How he restored Jerusalem and, 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 and the temple and, and worship of his holy name. That, that they're brought out of that place of, of idolatry. Out of the heart of Babylon, right? To, to be able to worship the Lord again. What, what I'm saying is, is, yeah, probably not in the time they wanted God to do it. But in his own good and sovereign time, over the next hundred years, God answers all of these prayers that they have. Now, I, I want you to look back at verse, verse 12 again. <clears throat> Hopefully you've got it in front of you still. I, you Remember I told you this was the key verse of Psalm 74, and, and that's because it, it resonates with profound significance, right? It says, <clears throat> And yet God my King is from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You see, the original Hebrew draws our attention to Jesus. And, and, and here's why, right? The, the Hebrew word for salvation right there is, is, is in verse 12 is, is Yeshua, right? If you look at that in the original language, it's Yeshua. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> Asaph is praising God for bringing Yeshua on the earth. And, and so here's where it gets really interesting. In the Gospel of Matthew, uh, an angel visited Joseph and he tells him, you know, Mary, you know the, <clears throat> the woman you're betrothed to? She is going to become miraculously pregnant. Right, this is a lot for him to hear. Uh, and then the angel says in Matthew 1.21, She shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Well, Jesus is, is the English name there. Okay? When, when you translate Jesus to the original Greek, which Matthew is written in, and then to the original Hebrew, right, all the way back to the Old Testament, you translate that to Hebrew... Um, then in, in Hebrew, the name that Joseph is instructed, instructed to give this child, you probably guessed it, is Yeshua. It's the very verse we see there, word we see there in verse 12 for salvation, right? Name, name this child salvation. In fact, that's why the angel gives that little qualifier afterwards, right? You're going to call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Salvation. Now, now through Christ, God accomplishes the redemption of his people, uh, right? He, he saves us from the clutches of sin, and from death. Now, expanding on this, this, this theme, I, I want you to see that the temple in, in Psalm 74 also points to Jesus. Now, you might re remember in John 2.19, Jesus tells the Jews, uh, yeah, hey, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. And they all look back, and they see the brick-and-mortar building, and they're like, what? Right? And, and Jesus was not talking about that building He's talk on, on Mount Zion. He is talking about his own flesh. He's talking about his own body, and Jesus fulfills everything Right? If you think about this, Jesus as a temple, he fulfills everything that the Jerusalem temple foreshadowed. Jesus is not only the place of sacrifice, Jesus is the sacrifices. Right? Taking this further, Jesus is the place and the only place where sinners may come and meet with God. Now on Good Friday, men did in fact destroy the temple. That is Jesus. That is his body. And, and on that dark Saturday, it would have been <clears throat> perfectly appropriate for his disciples to open up to Psalm 74 and to sing this lamenting the destruction of the temple of Jesus, right? But on the third day, their lamenting would turn to rejoicing at the resurrection of our Lord. We, we, we as God's people today, we, we, we certainly rejoice in the resurrection. We celebrate it every week. It's the only reason we get together and, and worship God, right? It's because the resurrection has occurred. Well, at the same time, we, we can also grieve 
<clears throat> because we know what it's like to be waiting for the Lord's glorious return, his second return. We, we can grieve because we, we, we've seen so much destruction to God's church in our time. Uh, Christopher Ashe puts it like this. He says, the persecuted church the world over sings this psalm and we must sing it with them. Closer to home, we should grieve at liberal theology eroding a confidence in truth. We should grieve at prosperity theology eroding a willingness to accept sacrifice. We should grieve at materialism eroding a willingness to give. We should grieve at sexual compromise eroding the boundaries of family life. We should grieve at a culture of celebrity and entertainment eroding humility and, uh, humility and maturity. We should grieve at political parties splitting churches. We should grieve at broken lives, broken churches, broken nations, and we should grieve at the darkness and disorder in our own hearts. All around, we look at the, we look at the ruins of what ought to be a glorious church. And yet, we also rejoice because our God is a covenant keeper. Everything we see here, everything we see throughout the Old and the New Testaments, right? We, we rejoice because through Christ, the, the curses of covenant disobedience have been atoned for. And, and, and for me and you, right, who are covenant breakers, that, that means we are reconciled to God solely because of Jesus. And so we can, we can set down our fears because when, when God says, I will be your God, and sometimes I know you struggle to believe this, but when God says, I will be your God, he, he really means no matter what. As Asaph prayed in verse 20, God does indeed regard his covenant. In, in Jesus, upon the cross and at the empty tomb, we, we see just how far God will go to keep his promise to redeem us from the curse, from sin, from, from well-earned wrath that we, well, that we've earned. In, in, in other words, Christian, those who have placed their faith in Christ in Jesus, you are utterly and indelibly secure, right? Indelibly or indelible, right? It means it can't be removed. There's no undoing it, right? Christian, in Jesus, you are utterly and indelibly secure. That's why we can rest in the gospel. This doesn't negate the fact that we want to live holy, that we want to live sanctified lives, that we want to bring our lives into further obedience in the Lord but all the while, while we're doing it, we can rest in the truth that it's, it's what Jesus has done for us. I don't undo that every time I mess up. None of you whose faith is in Christ do. And that means that tonight you can lay down, you can remember who God is. You can remember that He is sovereignly in control. You can remember that He will rule the world while you sleep. And so you can sleep. Let's pray. <clears throat> Faithful Father, may, may our hope and our confidence in your steadfast love for us, or may it be in our steadfast, your steadfast love for us, but most thoroughly displayed in the gospel, Lord, and in Jesus, may, may this give life and hope and endurance, even in the valley of suffering. We, we, we thank you and we praise you, Lord, for not, not only bringing glory out of darkness, strength out of weakness and joy out of sorrow, but often, Lord, you enrich the sweetness of salvation. You enrich the sweetness of, of what it means to know you, to be reconciled to you in our suffering. And so, Lord, may, may we find rest in you during the day, and may we find rest as we lay down and, and sleep at night, knowing that you continue to rule and you watch over the world.
including us, including our salvation, including our souls. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.